Good morning again. So great to gather together in these new spaces. Uh, thanks for being here, for inviting people not only to special events like we have the Art of Parenting this weekend, but to our worship services here this winter and beyond. Uh, great to see God at work in this new uh, season in the life of our church. I have a confession to make this morning. I enjoy food. I enjoy being in the kitchen. I enjoy looking in the refrigerator and looking in the pantry multiple times a day just to see if something new might have emerged there. Does anyone else need to make that confession this morning? Wonderful. I even enjoy going to the grocery store to shop, which is something that my wife actually limits for very understandable reasons. You see, when I go to the grocery store, the quantity goes up, the unnecessary costs increase, or so says my wife, uh, and the items get out of hand. My mom likes to tell the story of when I was a kid and rode in the grocery cart, and if you were small enough back then, you could be in the cart or under the cart, and uh, somehow additional items would make their way into the cart and onto the grocery store conveyor belt without her knowing. And she would only discover that they were there when we were putting things into our car or sometimes when we were unloading them in the kitchen. And she'd say to one of the boys, uh, where did this come from? Who put that in the cart? I like food. I like having it in abundance at home. And I like making food. Now, in the kitchen, there are two types of food preparation. There's cooking and there's baking. Now, I brought along some Yoder utensils from the kitchen. I really enjoy uh, cooking. I enjoy making breakfast and like to think that I'm pretty capable at that. Um, I enjoy being outside uh, cooking meat on the grill. Uh, I'm not bad with some other kinds of food preparations, at least so I think. The risk increases, though, when Dad is in the kitchen. I also like baking. I like baking uh, cookies. I like baking cakes, sometimes even pies, various kinds of desserts. Um, but I'm also often prohibited from doing so because I'm one of those who is more than likely to eat the batter as it's being prepared and to kind of get in the way of the process, so they say. The way I look at it, I'm a great taste tester, and I can forecast the quality of what's to come at the end. Some of you know exactly what my dilemma is, and many of my family members beg to differ about my value in the kitchen. There's one thing, though, that I've learned. Don't ever confuse cooking and baking. Two very different endeavors, as I've experienced. Cooking, of course, is a standing invitation to freelance, to be a maverick, to experiment. Uh, you can add very different combinations and ingredients, spices, sauces, a variety of unique tastes. Recipes, when you cook, are a mere suggestion. The more experience, the more confidence you have, the more you can just ignore them. But baking is a very different story. You see, in baking, the recipe is not a mere suggestion. It's a mandate. If you want the desired product in the end, you better not deviate from the recipe. If you change one or two ingredients, even a little amount, you're going to end up with a world-class flop, as some of you and I know. 
a disappointing failure. You see, cooking is for mavericks, but baking is for legalists. And you ignore the difference at your peril. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Joshua 1, where God gives instructions to his new leader, Joshua. And God's formula, his recipe for success in life, is full of commands and directives, not suggestions and tips. In other words, God speaks to Joshua in the language of baking, not of cooking. And Joshua would ignore these commands at his peril and the failure of his people. But Joshua obeys them with great wisdom, and his people are blessed as a result. And you and I this morning ought to heed God's instructions in like manner. Joshua chapter 1, we pick up in the second week of our series here. Last week, or two weeks ago, we examined Joshua 1, 1 to 5. And this week, we start with verse 5 and proceed through verse 9. If you look a little further in Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 to 18, are uh, Joshua passing on those commands to the people and a little bit of response from the people. Yes, we will do as you say, Joshua. Yes, we will heed God's commands. Yes, we desire his blessing. It was more wishful thinking than result or reality, as we'll see in the book of Joshua, but at least their claims were good. Joshua chapter 1 is an introduction. It's an overview. It's a summary of the entire book, and we're going to move at a little bit of a slower tempo here in Joshua 1, and we'll pick up the pace in the weeks to come. And all of this shows us in Joshua that God's promises are true, that his protection of his people, that his binding covenant with them, he takes seriously and he fulfills. We see in the book of Joshua a faithful God again and again. And the same God, the one embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, is just as faithful with his people today. And we see a man named Joshua who risked his life, who risked his leadership in trust of God. And the rewards for him, the rewards for those people, were immense as they followed a promise-keeping God. Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. You can stay seated this morning as I read those few short verses together. The Bible says, No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I, God, was with Moses, so I will be with you, Joshua. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now it's worth noting as we begin to examine this passage that the recipients of God's words are not the same throughout Joshua chapter 1. We miss some of this in our English translations. In verses 2 to 4 here, God's not merely talking to Joshua, but he's talking to all the Israelites. In a certain part of our country, he's talking to y'all. But beginning in verse 5, 
God is not speaking you plural, but you singular. He's talking to Joshua in particular. It's as if God is speaking first to the whole group, and then he pulls Joshua aside and says, I want to speak directly to you. The Germans called it speaking unter vier Augen, between four eyes. This is God to Joshua, and I want you, Joshua, to know what I have to say. It's a personal challenge and a personal encouragement to Joshua. And we should understand these words if we're followers of Jesus Christ in the same kind of personal way. The result, as we're going to find out later on in the book of Joshua and even in this passage, was great success, great prosperity for Joshua and for the people because Joshua followed God's commands. Philip Keller writes, Joshua's entire brilliant career was a straightforward story of, listen closely, simply setting one one foot down after the other in quiet compliance with the commands of God. And the people, as we're going to see in the following weeks, follow in commendable unity. Not just for uh, the land of Canaan, the promised land that they were to inherit, but as followers of Jesus Christ, God calls us to follow him so that we can win the world. Here's what Jesus says, John 17, 21, My prayer is not for them alone, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, the message of his disciples, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The way we come together, the unity we display, the love we have for one another is directly connected with the message of God to the world in which we live. Look back here at Joshua chapter 1. Let's unpack these powerful personal verses. And and in order to do so, I'd like to look at this in kind of a unique way. It's what scholars call a chiasm. It's a particular literary device that uses a lot of repetition and parallelism to make its point. Now, sometimes scholars get carried away and they find things that, quite frankly, aren't there. At least I don't think so. But in this passage, I believe that this structure sets up the very words of Scripture in a way that helps us understand precisely what God wanted to communicate to Joshua. Take a look at that. It's on the screen there. When we look at this passage, there are several themes that stand out. Look at verses 5 to 9. That would be the little letter A. And at the very bottom, A as well, the promise of God's presence. There's a security for Joshua. If you go to the next line or two, B and C, both the second and third line and toward the bottom, we see a call to courage. God repeats it. This is a necessity for Joshua. And there in the middle, D and E, we find a call to obedience, central to Joshua's response. All those words on the screen there, taken directly from these scriptures and highlight these three things that God wants Joshua to know, and they make our outline this morning. On the back of your worship program, you can follow along as we look at these. The first is the security of presence. You know, last week, two weeks ago, uh, God expressed his promise of his presence to Joshua. Not his general presence, but the same kind of presence that Moses experienced with God in times gone by. And Moses experienced all kinds of of companionship with God. Think about it, the burning bush, the exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Joshua had been along with Moses and he had seen the personal presence of God with this leader. Joshua had seen 
how God's presence was visible and definite to Moses. And he saw that Moses, because of the presence of God, was willing, even able, to take risks and to show initiative because he knew that somebody stood behind him. Moses had the backing of someone powerful, and Joshua had seen that. Thirty years ago, for those of you who were alive or those of you who study history, you would remember that George H.W. Bush, George Sr., was running for president. But he did so in the shadow of perhaps the most popular president of our lifetimes as the polling states, Ronald Reagan. Reagan was known, among other things, as the great communicator. He was uh, known as a movement conservative. He was known as somebody who had... Uh, connections in the entertainment world, in Hollywood, connections in the political world, and in California. Ronald Reagan was popular, and Ronald Reagan had deep support. And if you look back at presidential elections in 1980 and 1984, he won in landslides both times. He was popular throughout his eight years in power. George Bush, senior, on the other hand, ran a campaign to be Reagan's successor under the cloud, at least in some people's minds, of being a wimp. It was Time Magazine who had, I think, on a front cover, the wimp factor for George Bush. And in contrast to Reagan, at least some in the media thought in those years, they wondered if George Bush Sr. had Reagan's toughness and his eloquence and the skills to lead. And George Bush Sr. had to have wondered at times, is that true of me? I'll bet Joshua had similar thoughts a few thousand years ago. I'll bet Joshua said something like this to himself. You know, I've always been in the shadow of Moses. Moses had age and he had credibility. What do I have? But Joshua thought, you know, God was faithful to Moses, but I wonder if that was only for Moses. Am I Moses' caliber? What if Joshua thought, you know, Moses wandered around with these people in the wilderness, but I'm, I'm called to lead them into battle. Moses had a lot of courage, and, and he showed that multiple times, but do I have that kind of courage? I'll bet Joshua wondered that, even doubted. But God reminded Joshua again and again that he wasn't just the mere assistant to Moses. That God was preparing him to be the successor to Moses and to lead his people. That God would be with him to step up and to step out in ways that God signaled. And God reminded Joshua that his support wasn't like the support of the American people for a president. You know, a, a, a small period of time, fickle depending upon what's happened the day or week before. God's support was divine, it was permanent, it was total. And he would not let Joshua down. He would not abandon Joshua. He would not let Joshua be hung out to dry. Joshua was given leadership responsibilities. As one of our study Bibles says, this charge to be strong and courageous would be daunting if it wasn't for the promises. I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God's presence offered Joshua security as he moved forward in the unknowns of life. What about you? 
Do you face some unknown circumstances right now, a situation where you don't know how this will play out? Do you wonder right now if maybe you're all alone, if God's going to let you walk to the end of the branch? Are you fairly certain right now that your future will probably turn out poorly, that you will end up a failure? If that's you at all this morning, I say look at Joshua and look at his God. And that same God, if you know Jesus, is your God too. Verses 6 and 7, the necessity of courage. Be strong and courageous. Just in reading that and hearing that, you realize that this was repeated not once, two, or three times, but four times if we include the do not be discouraged in verse 9. In fact, in verse 7, as if to make a point, God says be strong and very courageous. So that Joshua couldn't say, well, God, you know, you said it once, but I missed it. Four times God says this to him. So it would be unmistakable, unforgettable for Joshua. God wanted Joshua to know that he could be strong and full of courage as he moved ahead as God directed him. You know, courage is an essential virtue for people who want to live lives of significance, for people of faith. We see that all across the scriptures. In the Old Testament, Abraham showed courage when he moved from his homeland. Joseph showed courage when he fled temptation. David faced showed courage when he faced Goliath. Elijah showed courage when he faced false gods. Esther showed courage when she moved into the king's court. Daniel showed courage when he stood up to the king. Peter showed courage when he faced the Jewish leaders. Paul showed courage when he testified of Jesus Christ before kings. And we see courage today. Courage today is shown in believers who show integrity at work. When leaders show sacrifice. When friends are willing to speak up and say hard things. When family members are willing to be wronged. When spouses ask forgiveness, they show courage. When children obey their parents, even if they don't understand why, they show courage. When followers of Jesus speak the gospel, they show courage. Courage comes... When we have confidence that God is there and that God has spoken. Courage isn't some fleeting wish, some fleeting hope that something might materialize, that someone might show up for us in the nick of time. That's not courage, that's not faith, that's wishful thinking. Sometimes that's even cowardice. Courage, according to the Bible, is the willingness to take risks and move forward because you're convinced God is with you. Courage is the willingness to take risks and move forward because you're convinced God is with you. Courage is a lot like faith. It's the active result of resolve of something true not yet seen. Courage is being willing to jump because you know the character, you know the experience and the history you know the track record of the person below. Courage is more than just hope. Courage is a settled certainty. Consider 
skydiving, something that I've never done. How many of you have gone skydiving before? Oh, you brave souls. For the rest of you, how many of you would jump out of a plane on your own if you had all the necessary equipment and someone had coached you up a little bit? Wow, I'm going to test you on that. Now, how many of you would jump out of the plane if it was on fire and staying in the plane would cause your certain death? More of you. How many of you would make that same jump if a person you trusted, if a person who had coached you, a person was willing to jump in tandem with you in your presence at that time? See, if a person who was proficient, a person who had experience, literally jumped with you, was strapped to you, had shown his or her expertise, my guess is that far more of you would be willing to jump. Let's remember here that Joshua was not just anyone among God's people. It was important that every one of those individuals chose to follow God's directives. But Joshua's response was especially important because he was a public figure. Joshua was a leader. His example would be seen by everyone and it would be followed by virtually all of them. Joshua knew that leaders set the pace. The, the Hebrew wording here makes clear that if he, Joshua of all people, were weak or without resolve, then the whole cause here would be in deep trouble. How Joshua responded mattered greatly. And God called him to courage in the face of the unknown. Third thing we see in this passage, the centrality of obedience. Not just the presence of God, not just courage before God, in situations not only for Joshua, but for each of you as you look at the circumstances of your life, here we see the centrality of obedience. This is the heart, the center of God's instructions to Joshua in this divine pep talk. God calls Joshua to a life and a practice of obedience. Specifically, he says in verse 7, to obey the law given to Moses, to do it carefully, obey carefully everything written in it. Radical obedience in all of life. God's instructions here were unlimited. They were permanent. They were specific. All the law, everything written in it. Write this down if you can. This is not a call to selective obedience, but exhaustive obedience. Not selective obedience, but exhaustive obedience. And we should take note because obedience to God's commands made Joshua a great figure and example, and one worth following. Why? Well, in short, Joshua accepted what God had already said as his word. The Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua saw not only as the writings of Moses, but as God's word as well. Joshua was to live by obedience in the written word of God, and not in hope of special revelations. Many of us think, God, I know that you've said this in the Bible, but I need a special word from you. I need a, a, a secret word from you. I need you to tell me more than you've already said. Joshua's example 3,500 years ago is profound for us. We now have the whole Bible in our hands. And we're to accept it and obey it as God's word in our time and place. 
We're not supposed to be people who say in the year 2019, yeah, I know God said that back then, but, but the Bible needs updating for, for me to obey it. You know, we live in the 21st century after all, God, and, and, and times have changed, and, uh, and ideas have evolved. You need to update things for me. Now, Joshua took it as God's word, and he obeyed it. Of all the things that God wants to impress on this new leader here, obedience is at the top of the list. God knows that, that character and humility, more than skills, matter in life. One writer says it's striking that God's instructions here to Joshua are not about military matters. Remember, he's to go take the promised land. The keys to his success were spiritual, directly related to the degree of his obedience to God. We are always seeking to understand God's word, even as we're called to obey it, sometimes before we understand it. If we've told our kids this once, we've told them a thousand times, first obey, then ask questions. So it is with God. Recently, I received a ministry update from the Belahovics, like some of you, Sai and Renessa, near and dear to our hearts. They live in uh, Central Asia, and they're sharing the gospel and helping people understand uh, who Jesus is in some very creative ways. And included in that electronic update from a few weeks ago was a picture of a lot of people connected to their church. You see it on the screen there. Lots of diversity in age and gender and appearance and expressions. But I looked at that picture more closely, and I was struck by one young boy's hat. Not only did I find that amusing, but I actually want one of those hats. In fact, I want four of those hats. (laughs) Now, I know that Sai's working on some high-end cashmere product to help people get jobs and to be successful there, but that cashmere is not my obsession. I want that hat. I want duplicates of it for four children and for a lot more. Obedience. How was God supposed to obey, or Joshua supposed to obey God's word? First of all, by knowing it. He was, the Bible says here, to meditate on it day and night, to always keep it on his lips. He was to constantly immerse himself in the scriptures, and that's a vital reminder for us. Too many of us, if we're honest, think that we'll be able to obey God and to follow his will when we spend little time immersed in his word. You know, a sermon here, a few Sunday school lessons there, a a verse that I remember from childhood, a nice Bible saying on the wall. We think that'll be enough, but we fool ourselves. If we want to obey God, knowing scripture by itself will not be enough. But not knowing the Bible will guarantee our ignorance and our lack of obedience. Simply put, God's people are supposed to be people of God's word. I don't know what your New Year's resolution may have been, but each of us ought to be systematically and regularly reading the Bible. At least if we want to be people of obedience. The key isn't which reading plan you choose, it's that you have a plan. So how do we know and obey God's word? Here here God's instructions to Joshua are very practical. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, which is an ancient 
Hebrew way of saying, stay focused on what God says, not all the other voices to the side. Which doesn't mean that we bury our head in the sand and, and become unaware of the writings and the, and the authors and the ideas of our day. We should engage with those ideas. Paul was a great example of that. But it does mean that Scripture is our central focus, our primary fixation, the authority that stands over us. We don't stand over Scripture so that we can interpret it to our liking. Scripture stands over us to interpret us and to guide us to God's liking. The difference is profound. We read also here in this passage that Joshua should keep the book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Meditation, back in Hebrew thought, involved at least two things. One was a focus upon God as the lawgiver, and the other was an activity to be done aloud. A lot of believers have seen many of the abuses of meditation... And there are some associated with Eastern mysticism and the like. And they've concluded that all meditation is bad. But that's not true. The Bible commands us here to meditate on God's word. What does that mean? It means setting aside time to read and reflect on the scriptures out loud if we can. And when we do that, we not only engage one of our senses visually, but we engage three of them because we hear it and we speak it. And research tells us that the more senses we can involve, the more likely the substance is to stick. Knowing and obeying the scriptures. But it's more than just a duty. God wants it to be a delight. And we have examples of that. The psalmist in the longest chapter in all the Bible says so. Psalm 119 beginning in verse 97 says this, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I've not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Here we read of a, a person who's full of integrity, both knowing and doing the will of God. The psalmist knows that there's delight in knowing and there's resolve in doing. And it guides all the actions, all the attitudes of his life. Obedience matters in life. Obedience matters to followers of Jesus Christ. Right at the middle of the Great Commission, the end of Matthew, the first of the Gospels, Jesus says this, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to know everything I have commanded you. Is that what it says? No. N-O teaching them to obey, to heed, to do everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, to Jesus as well, obedience matters. It's not an optional add-on for us. It's connected vitally to knowing God. 
Obedience isn't the root of our relationship, but it is the fruit of our relationship. Obedience matters to God, and it always has. One pastor in our day uh, was in the state up north for many years now, down in North Carolina, wrote this, Kevin DeYoung. Among conservative Christians, there's sometimes the mistaken notion that if we are truly gospel-centered, we won't talk about rules or imperatives or moral exertion. In other words, God's instructions, commands to us. It sounds really spiritual to say God is interested in a relationship, not in rules. Maybe you've said that. But it's not biblical. From top to bottom, the Bible is full of commands. They aren't meant to stifle a relationship with God. This is key but to protect it, to seal it, to define it. See, knowing God and obeying God, they go hand in hand. They belong together. It's just that knowing God comes first. Personally speaking, pastorally speaking, this is where it becomes a challenge for us as believers because so many of us are tempted to think that we are moral free agents. You know, we think... I get to determine. I'm authorized to determine what's right and wrong, not God. Or we're spiritual lone rangers. We, we say, you know, I'm sufficient on my own. I don't need the encouragement or fellowship or presence of other believers. I'm a lone ranger. But what happens with those people is again and again they reach dead ends. They find themselves in the ditch. Pastor Jonathan said this when we got together a number of days ago. So much of our frustration and impotence is because of our lack of obedience, not our lack of knowledge. Here's the painful truth. You and I are masters at rationalizing disobedience because our situation is unique. How do we do that? Well, we do that with truth-telling. I know truth is good, but in this situation I had to. We do that with damaging speech. He had it coming when I said that. We do that with sexual exploitation. God understands my, my pain and my emptiness. We do that with greed and stinginess. Yes, someday when I have something, I will. We do that with revenge. She crossed the line. She deserved it. We do that with laziness. There was a time when I worked hard. We do that all throughout life. We rationalize our disobedience because of our unique situation. But God doesn't give us that out. According to the Bible, the secret of success is knowing and speaking of and meditating and doing God's word. See, in God's world, there's no substitute for full obedience. And that's what we need today. Though Pastor James Montgomery Boy said, we don't need increasingly clever methods, increasingly clever people, but obedience informed and motivated by the living and abiding word of God. And Jesus is our ultimate example. Here's what he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is the perfect example of joyful obedience. And he offers you power to do the same. You might sit here this morning and say, how is that possible? Obedience and, and pleasurable? 
Joshua may have wondered that as well. And the answer to the delight of obedience is back to the place where we started. It's the presence of God. It's the overriding presence of the God who made us and the God who loves us. The long-term motivation and success of obedience is knowing Jesus. Because Jesus gives us the desire and the power to obey him when we want to and when we don't. When it makes sense and when it doesn't. When it's easy and when it's hard. Trust me, God says, I'm with you and I'm for you. Joshua and Israel will be successful not because they obey God's word, but because God's with them to enable them to obey his word. Jesus told that to his disciples in their mission. I am with you always. And God tells us here, tells Joshua what the result of obedience is. It's, it's glorious, it's personal. The end of verse 7 says that you may be successful wherever you go. And you might read that and, and, and say, the Bible doesn't talk about success. That must be a misprint. Well, it says it again, verse 8, then you will be prosperous and successful. God desired Joshua's success and prosperity. For Joshua, for the people of God then, it meant entering into the promised land. It meant experiencing the rest that God would give. It meant a, a blessing from God. The promises given to us are not identical to those to Joshua. Even in the Old Testament, success was rarely combined with financial prosperity. Rather, success in life's endeavors. There's another example in the Bible of what God called Joshua and he calls us to do. 2 Kings chapter 18, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. And God makes promises to us, to the church, to followers of Jesus in community. He says his gospel will succeed. He says he will use us in the process. He says he will care for us, for you, all the days of your life. He says he will bring us home. He says to his disciples pointedly, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things, food, clothing, shelter, relationships, purpose, will be given to you as well. Our priority is to seek and obey God. He'll take care of the rest. You want to be successful in life? You want to be successful in God's eyes? Joshua offers us a model here. God's recipe for spiritual success requires essential ingredients of response. Not the response of a chef who freelances, does what he likes to achieve a result to his satisfaction, but the response of a baker who follows the formula of the one who designed it in the first place. And when we do, 
the results in our lives are scrumptious. Not as the world defines them, but as God does. And the key is Jesus. He shows the way, and he gives us the power to follow it. The question is, will we? Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your presence with us. We're grateful that you're a God who not only tells us to trust and obey, but gives us the power to do so. We're grateful that you're a God who not only made us, but who loves us and who offers to be with us every step of the way. We're grateful for a God who not only came in the flesh in the person of Jesus, but who has sent now his spirit to live in each one of Jesus' followers. Thank you, God, that you are not a bystander in our lives, but you're a presence within us. And that you're a God who has conquered, who is greater, who has overcome. I pray that these words that you first gave to Joshua would resonate in our hearts. And that we would be people who believe in the one who has overcome and follow him with radical obedience in a world so in need of seeing that so that they can see God. Give us joy. Give us delight in the process. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.